Hey, this is Chris Eldridge, and you are listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another week of Bluegrass Jam Along. And as you've already gathered from the intro, my guest this week is Chris Eldridge. Um, Chris is not only a great guitar player, um, he's also a great guitar player in my favorite band in the world, Punch Brothers. Um, and I love his playing... With Punch Brothers, I love his playing with the duet stuff he does with Julian Large. Um, I just also really enjoy listening to interviews with Chris and hearing him chat about music, about playing the guitar, uh, about teaching, about kind of, you know, this. it's got a really sort of deep sense of what all this is about, um, but also is just incredibly open and approachable and, you know, just it's it's not often you talk to somebody that you don't know and feel like you could talk to them for another hour after you've finished and... You know, it feels like just talking to a friend. And that's what this interview felt like. It's a real treat for me and a real pleasure. And I think there's some great stuff in here that you guys will all enjoy too. Um, So I'm going to crack on and let you listen to the interview with Chris Eldridge. Here we go. So Chris Eldridge, welcome to Bluegrass Chamelon. Oh, thank you for having me. Very happy to be here. It's really cool to have you here. Um, It reminds me of something I heard you say on another interview. Um, one of the, the joys of doing this podcast and talking to people in the bluegrass world is that people in the bluegrass world aren't that hard to get hold of because they're all yeah. kind of regular people. But I, I remember you saying in another interview about that generation of sort of Tony and Baylor and Jerry Douglas, and you described them as superheroes, the guys who wore invisible capes that only you and your friends yeah. could see. And I love that idea that there are people like you are the guitarist in my favorite band in the world. And here uh, we are having a chat and it's just, yeah, it's a treat for me. So Oh, cool. Well, thank you. It's it's my pleasure to be here. And, and that is one of the beautiful things about our little kind of world of music, the bluegrass world, is that is that bluegrass as a as a music form is kind of something that is shared among people. You, you, you know, just by its very nature, it's pretty social. You can go to a bluegrass festival and hang out by a campfire and, you know, meet somebody for the first time and play tunes with them for five hours and you've never met before but there's just something baked into the music about it being very kind of community oriented and there's common material and and i think that sort of just extends to the culture of it as well yeah and there's something incredibly grounding about going to a festival and knowing that the people you see headlining on the main stage may well be doing a workshop in front of 150 people in a little tent the next day there's not that that sort of barrier between you know and you know that half the audience at least are going to be musicians as well and so there's not that divide of us and them. It's just sort of all us, really. Well, yeah, that that's totally true. And also, like most of the musicians that you saw on stage probably grew up um, hanging out with their heroes, you know, who would pick a tune with them every now and then. You know, yeah, there's yeah. like, there's very much, <clears throat> I think everybody who, who's kind of been on stage is, has kind of been in that situation too, where they were, you know, if not able to become close to their people, at least meet them. Um and maybe even play a tune with them. Uh, you know, that's something that's really kind of unique. I can't really imagine doing that with, uh, you know, Radiohead. It's yeah, not, yeah. But it's hard It's hard to get a hold of Tom York. You know, and Johnny like, Greenwood has not been returning my calls lately, so. And there's probably, like, reasons for their mental health. Well, that's probably quite a good thing with the amount of people who would want to talk to them, you know. It's, Absolutely. It's a, different, it's a different world, isn't it? Yeah, it's a definitely it's a different world. It's uh, it's not exactly planned obsolescence. I don't know what how we would transfer that over to the bluegrass thing, but um, you know, planned um, 
what's the word? I'm blanking on it. But anyway, yeah, there aren't a lot of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's cool. Um, so what I'd love to talk about is Punch Brothers' new record, Hell on Church Street, um, yeah. and how it came about. Because I think the same interview that I heard you talking about superheroes with invisible capes, you were also asked about your Desert Island Discs, and without any hesitation whatsoever, Church Street Blues was top of your list. Um, yeah. So to, to cover a whole record is quite an undertaking, and to cover your favourite record is quite an undertaking, and to be the guitarist in a band that covers a record of that type is also quite a thing. Um, and I'm just curious to know how it came about, like how you ended up going the whole hog and going, well, let's just do the whole record. Well, we, we'd been planning on, so Punch Brothers schedules things pretty far out in advance just because everybody's very busy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 2021 was going to be a pretty busy punch year and we were going to, and 2020 was going to be, uh a year that we made a new record we were going to get together we had plans kind of through the out the summer and fall to to get together and work on music and write music and of course the pandemic um came and got involved and 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 that wasn't really an option especially in the early days of course there were no vaccines but we also didn't know that much about it um noam you know people noam had just had a baby in july so they were kind of keeping it extra tight around that and other people have kids so we were we 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 just didn't have the freedom to get together um and work the way we were going to and typically for punch brothers you know we we put a lot of time in on music before anybody else hears it i mean just the process of writing and arranging our music is something that kind of happens by committee um it's I mean, it's happened, but it's it's somewhat unusual to for someone to show up, and and that if it's ever a someone, it's it's pretty much always Thiele, you know, and the handful of times that that's happened. But you just show up and be like, okay, I've got a song. Let me show you how it goes. Like yeah. we don't really work like that, um, and so so for us to um, have the time together to just hash this stuff out, typically, you know, I bet we spend. Uh, a month, you know, doing that six weeks um, of just getting in a room together and sitting in a room and just working on it all day, every day. And that's, um, you know, and the thing about Punch Brothers too, is that the way we kind of play as an ensemble, I kind of feel like the arranging is almost equally important in terms of how our music works Mm -hmm. um, to the songs themselves. And it's part of the reason that you know, people very rarely cover Punch Brothers songs is because they're not, they're not songs that lend themselves well to that. Like here are the chords, here's somebody sing the melody around the campfire. It's, it's kind of, it's the conception of it all um, definitely includes the ensemble as kind of a core piece of what that music is about. Um, And so we kind of have to do it that way. Um, like the songs don't really become themselves until yeah, I feel like they're written and arranged sort of simultaneously. And those, those two things are, um, sort of equally important to the final output. Um, okay. So all of that said, we just didn't have time to do our usual thing to get together. And, and so we, but we did want to make a record, um, and we were just kind of brainstorming like, okay, well, what could we do? Um, that would still be um, something we could really get behind artistically, 
Um, but with the constraint of our time is really quite limited. Mm. Uh, we just don't have the same um, freedom that we usually have to, to work on this stuff. And and we, we threw out a bunch of ideas, but, but we kind of started thinking about, well, maybe we could do a, a kind of record of other people's songs. Maybe we don't have to write these things. Because typically, actually, we we can throw covers together very quickly. Um, it's like, it's like the arranging part. Um, it's funny. It takes forever when it's our music, but, but, you know, um, a lot of our, like when we did kid a by Radiohead, hmm. I mean, that was, we kind of just mentioned what, you know, how we might divvy up the parts before we, we did that at, um, Telluride. And it was that like, it was like, uh, 2009 i think we did a set it was our first kind of uh well also in tribute to tony we did this set called punch brothers plays and sings bluegrass um and because we'd already done our thing the year before and we didn't have a new record out so we said okay let's do this like let's do an actual bluegrass set um or you know insofar as we do it but as a compliment um because we're crazy we, we, we always play this thing called Nightgrass at, at, at Telluride. We close down the festival every Sunday night, and we've done it for the last 14 years. It's, it's a tradition. And um, so for Nightgrass, we said, okay, if we're going to do all bluegrass, let's do an all Radiohead Nightgrass set. Like, that might be a fun thing to do. So we learned, like, a million Radiohead songs. Um, and most of them we'd kind of – we'd learned – beforehand we used to do these crazy shows in the first year after paul joined the band and we the first year we all lived in new york um called p bingo night and there's this amazing little club uh in the lower east side of manhattan that was called the living room and it was really great i mean you could maybe fit 150 people in there uh maybe not even that many maybe 100 and but that was that was kind of our our little spot and you know when we first started out uh, when we all moved to the city, it was like, oh, okay, we're going to be a real band now. We're going to have a weekly residency. And of course, you know, the first week took us like six days of all day rehearsals, you know, to get the music together. Cause, and, uh, we're like, okay, that's not going to work. We got to do this every other week. And that, you know, of course we probably just spent 10 days, you know, between, uh, cause, cause we work a lot. So anyway, we, we, we got together a bunch of this Radiohead and bluegrass music for one of those, for the last P bingo night we ever did, but we didn't, we failed to get, um, kid a together, uh, for P bingo. We just said, we'll figure it out when we get to Telluride, but it was pretty straightforward. A lot of times with cover songs, you might have an idea of, you know, how the different parts are functioning. And that's part of the reason that you would cover a song is that, um, you know, you can get in there and try and learn how it ticks. If you, if you have to cover it, then you have to, you have to understand why it's working the way it is. And so how do you do that? You have to like pull it apart and put it back together. And, and so we kind of just said, all right, I'll cover this part. I'll do that. You do this. And we showed up and probably arranged that as a band in like 15 minutes because all Mm -hmm. the parts were, were already there. I was like, okay, I'm going to do the da 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 And, you know, Thiele was going to be the drummer and Paul was going to be Tom York, but bowing it on his bass. Noam already had figured out that keyboard part. So that's um, that's kind of how we did that. By the way, I've just gone on, I've, I just like went on like five tangents. I don't even <laughs> remember what our original question was. Oh, right. We were talking about um, getting music together um, and the idea of covering things and how, how we can do it usually fairly quickly because we had time constraints for this new punch record. So, so we, we threw out a bunch of ideas and then, and thought, well, just a covers record 
that that would be cool. And actually, people have been asking us to do that for years. But but we wanted to have it. We wanted some sort of theme to be there. We wanted it to be kind of um, united by something, you know, not just a bunch of songs. Um, and the idea of um, reimagining a record came up. And we'd actually at Rocky Grass, um, great people who also put on Planet Bluegrass or put on uh, uh, Telluride, Planet Bluegrass is the name of those guys. Um, we did a we did a plays and blue, sings bluegrass set, which is something we've only ever done for the Planet Bluegrass folks. We've probably done it four or five times now. And for that, we we did we covered Church Street Blues. Again, came up with the we you know very spontaneously. I mean, it was like that afternoon we we kind of reimagined some of those songs um, and played the show, and it was really fun. It was it was clear that that audience knew and loved that record. Um, and it just, it felt really special. Those, those songs are so well curated. Um, and, and of course, Tony is such a, such a, an icon and an influence on, on all of us individually. Um, you know, and it's also, it's just one guy, you know, well, with the exception of Wyatt on a couple of tracks, but just one guy and a guitar, um, singing these songs in this very stripped down way that he put his, put a real stamp on. So, so, so everything about that kind of suggested to us, like, well, this would be a killer record to kind of reimagine. We all love it. The songs are great. Um, it's a way to interact with this beautiful piece of art that we already love so much and means so much to us. And honestly, for it to be a tribute to Tony, who was still very much alive at that point, it, it wasn't mm. a, you know, in memorial record that Tony was there and we were psyched to, um, share it with him. And, and, um, you know, which I, I always feel is where I always want to mention that in interviews, because I, I feel like it kind of, it changes the context in which people might understand the record. It, this isn't like a Tony just passed away. So we're going to do this yeah. thing. It was a, it was a living tribute. Um, and so, so that was that we, we, we had about, I don't know, maybe two and a half, three weeks. I'm not, sure from from kind of the first day we all landed in nashville till when we all when everybody went home um and we you know we reimagined some of the songs like when we did church street blues at rocky grass the song we basically just played it the way tony played it but with a band yeah, yeah. um which was um which was fun i i actually sang it i was I don't know if I've ever been that nervous. I really, really? didn't do a very good job because uh, I was uh, stepping up to do that, as you said, as a guitar player. And like, and I don't sing yeah. much in the band anyway. I'm not, I've, I've never, I've never been one who um, felt particularly um, like I wanted to be just in the spotlight for, for more than just a short amount of time. So I was, I stepped, I was like, I couldn't breathe. It was, uh, it was not the finest version of church Street blues I've ever sung. But anyway, we did that one. Um, we did that one. And, but the few of them, we just kind of really did reimagine there and then. And, and with some extra time, we, we really got to get in there with, with the rest of them and, uh, and really kind of try to try to make them, um, our own. Because mm. I'm sorry, I'm like I'm talking a whole lot without letting you interject. But but um, it's all good. but one you know one of the big things that that Tony really taught us by by example and and me personally as my 
mentor, which he really was at kind of a crucial point in my development, um, was that you have to be yourself. You got to do things the way only you can do them. That that's, um, you know, that's kind of where it's at. Um, you know, and that uh, I, I think he had, I think in, in, in a way he was, he was kind of flattered when he realized that, you know, people would study his thing and, and imitate him. I think, I think part of him appreciated that because it's just a, it's obviously a really nice thing. It's a validation of what you've done. But at the same time, I know for a fact that it drove him crazy. And he didn't, he didn't, on this other side of him just didn't want to hear that, didn't want to hear people doing that. Um, he wanted to hear people being themselves and being unique. And that was something that he and I talked about a lot. Um, because at that point in time, I could, I, when I was younger, I was really, I could really play Tony like Tony. Uh, I can't anymore. I can't even come close anymore. Um, but, but at a certain point I, I was pretty, uh, good at it. And he, he, he kind of was like, I've already beat, I beat you to it. Like I've already done that. Like mm. you need to kind of find yourself. You need to sound like you. Uh, and he, and he told me that his ability to sound like himself, um, you know, when he was young, he wanted to play like Clarence White. And he said at a certain point, I just realized I couldn't. I just could never be Clarence. And there, there, were, there were things, I had weaknesses that would allow, wouldn't allow me to, to be like Clarence. And, and, and of course, um, you know, in those weaknesses, he found his strengths. And then, you know, look what he became and what he did. He's, he kind of became the, the um, I would argue, the, the all-time most important figure in, in bluegrass guitar. It kind of redefined not only bluegrass guitar, created this whole vocabulary you could use, elevated everybody he played with, um, but he also changed the music and kind of ushered it into its modern form. I'd kind of argue more than anybody. Um, and I think that's a really that's a really cool point to make, and I think it's a point that should be made more, is that... Um, like I, I know exactly what you said about Tony. I read in an interview he was saying, you know, I sounded like I sound because I tried to sound like Clarence and couldn't quite do it, and so I yeah. found my own thing. And but that's, that's your job as a musician is to show up authentically as you as a human being, expressed in musical. Form. That's your job. That's what. That's the point of being a musician is to communicate something of who you are, not of who somebody yeah. else is, and uh, or any kind of artist, like a novelist or a visual artist or a dancer. Like your job is to express you in the form of art totally and because it's communication and it's it's that it's a funny thing you know so we're going to move i was going to ask you about the reception particularly to the track church street blues because that's very much reimagined and i know i interviewed tristan scroggins um a while ago and he said that he'd been chatting to you and you'd said it was you know maybe the single most divisive thing you've done in terms of the reaction <laughs> to it um but it is so and we we had a, a long conversation about authenticity in music and your version of Church Street Blues is not authentic to Tony's version, but it's utterly authentic to the spirit of Tony's version, which is take something and make it yours. And well, that's, that was, that's what counts, you know. Th that, was, that was the idea. Um, you know, and I, it's, it's, it's interesting because I think um, when we made this record and, and people kind of found out that we were doing it, I think a, a lot of people were really excited, like, oh, finally these guys are going to just play some bluegrass. <laughs> You know, because we, we grew up playing bluegrass and, and we love it and, you know, and, and we're, we're good at it. It's like something that we has, is a real part of what we do. But 
um, or, or who we are, I should say. I don't mean we're good at it in like a, but it's like, it's something that we all feel really comfortable with. You know, we grew up there. And, and I think um, for us, there's kind of a sense of, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to interact with that record, like you say, in this, with the same kind of um, curiosity and imagination that, that Tony kind of brought to it. Because if you listen to Tony's version of the song Church Street Blues as compared to Norman Blake's version, Norman, who, of course, wrote it, mm. um, and Norman's version is completely epic as well. I mean, that's one of my favorite Norman Blake recordings is him playing Church Street Blues. It's like, it's incredible. Um, but Tony's version is super different. Um, and so, so it, it kind of seemed really important for us to kind of reflect. It wouldn't be Punch Brothers if we just played it, um, if we tried to play a Tony version of the song. That's not, we, for better or, or worse, you know, have, have a different palette of things um, available to us as an ensemble. And, um, and so we kind of want to use those things and, and hopefully find something that we think is really beautiful and unique and that, that we would, you know, find fascinating or beautiful as listeners. Um, but it's not, it's really not going to do that for everybody, which, which we're totally fine with. Um, I think what there was, I mean, I wish I could admit, I wish I could say, I never look at YouTube or read the comments. Um, I really do. Cause it's like just sad and narcissistic, like ever looking at comments, you know, but, but, um, but I, I definitely looked at the comments on that and, and, you know, a lot of people liked it, but there were, there were people who were like angry about it. There were, yeah, yeah. there were like a number of people who like, it pissed them off. And, um, and I think that, I, I, to me, um, I don't know. I, I'm sorry that they feel that way, but, but, but not apologetic at all for, for doing kind of what we did to it because what we did is exactly what Tony did just, uh, in a different way. And, and it's because Tony's version means so much to so many people that I think, I think people almost, um, it's the same thing with traditional bluegrass versus like progressive bluegrass. I mean, it's funny Mm -hmm. that Tony is now like the kind of, is a traditionalist um in terms or, or has has the modern day traditionalists kind of in that camp but um you know if you kind of think about longer back in bluegrass um traditionalists wanted to play it just like bill monroe and um platt and scruggs and the stanley brothers and you know the seldom scene for instance like you know my father's band yeah. or or people like that were were um you know it was also offensive <laughs> to to a lot of people but to a lot of people it wasn't and i think that's just the the, the, the music kind of just tumbles um forward through time in that way um yeah and, and, and i think that's okay and you can't like, i ended up doing a sort of short episode of the podcast just purely about the reaction to that song in the end because like I don't, you can't ruin a song. You can't do it. It's not possible. A song is an idea. It's not a fixed. It's not like a painting you can take a chunk out of or a cathedral you can lop a wall off. It's a song is only ever an idea until you commit it to tape, and then it's your version of an idea. So yeah, like you can't under whatever you do, you cannot undermine somebody else's joy at Tony's version or Norman's version or somebody else's version. It's just you know. Well, those things are still there. I mean, that's 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 the thing. It's like 
um, no, they haven't gone anywhere. And, and thank God, because like, there's no one who loves that more than I do. Like, I, I don't want to have to listen to the punch version only ever for the rest of my life, just because we recorded it that way. I'm glad it exists, but I will be listening to church street blues, the song and the album, um, for the rest of my life, you know, as, as just kind of a well of inspiration and, and, and just, boy, just being close to Tony in that way. It's, it's, um, it's incredible. It's incredible that, you know, you can do that. And did the, did the reception feel different? Cause I know, and I mean, then the, the documentary, the how to grow a band documentary may not be an accurate representation of what went on at that time, but I remember watching right. that and seeing you in a cab on the way to the Bush Hall gig in London, <laughs> which I was at, um, but you'd played in Glasgow the night before and, you know, blind leaving the blind hadn't gone down a storm. And you were questioning, you know, do we break it up? Do we do this with it? Do we do that? You know, how? And in the end, my memory of the gig is that he went down an absolute storm in in London. But that's, I guess, yeah. that's your music, not a treasured. You know, it's not you're you're doing that breaking new ground. Well, I think what it always has to do with um, in that kind of situation, it always, it always has everything to do with expectations. And I mean, we can extrapolate that and just talk about like wider life lessons. You know, mm. you get things become painful if you have expectations that aren't met. Whereas if you're kind of open to whatever it is um, and you don't bring expectations to the table, then everything just can be accepted as it is what it is. And you might like, might be like, this is for me. This is not for me. But I think, I think, um, you know, when we did that gig in Glasgow, um, it was, people were kind of, setting it up and setting up that music um, promoters were as something that it wasn't. So Feely, who'd just been in Nickel Creek and who were like the most, you know, popular band on the scene then and very young and poppy. And, you know, he, it was like, okay, he's got a new band now and it's a bluegrass band. There's like banjo and, you know, it's like, it, it more is, uh, uh, it's Chris Feely, this incredible musician with a bluegrass band. And, and so people, um, I think we're expecting a bluegrass band. Uh, and, and it wasn't at all. It was, you know, in many ways, probably to this day, the most ambitious thing we've ever done. Um, at least in terms of the structure of it. And, and, um, and so I think there were people in the audience who kind of came and wanted to have a good time. And it was like, it it was chamber music. It was that, Mm. that first record was straight up, chamber music that had had real um you know influences from kind of bluegrass and string band music and it was these these instruments but it was not kind of toe tapping good time stuff it was like 40 minutes of through composed music um and and so we were um we were jeered at that gig there are some people you know just shouting out not much i mean here's the other thing that review got a five-star review in like the whatever the like the scottish herald whatever the the main newspaper is in Mm. in glasgow um the big newspaper gave us a five out of five star review so it's not it's not as if that show was a complete failure but it was the first time that i personally had ever been in in an on-stage experience where people in the audience were like angry and like yeah. and yelling at us or, or i don't i shouldn't say yelling but they were like they were jeering us like do you know any good tunes lads or like, you know, things like that just um, at the quietest moment. And, and for that music that really got kind of gets in there and messes with your ability to focus and concentrate. But um, yeah, so I, I think it has everything to do 
ultimately with um, with expectations. It's funny because I, I was the, the afternoon of that London show. I was at a friend's house. We were working together, and they said, "Oh, what are you doing tonight?" I said, "I'm going to a gig," and he said, "Oh." I might come with you. I said, "Right, well, yeah, okay." Um, it, it'll be an interesting gig to come come too cold, and he's like, oh, "I'll just come, I'll come." And um, and he, like, afterwards, he was like, "God, I didn't know music could do that. That was incredible." But he'd come with no, he didn't, he'd never heard of any of you, didn't, hadn't heard any of the music, had no like, you know, no preconceptions whatsoever, um, and right. like he's sort of a lifelong fan now, and that was cool, kind of a remarkable Thank thing, you. you know, and <laughs> yeah, it was yeah, but it was just brilliant because I was I was a bit nervous because I was I knew what to expect because I'd read a bit about what was in progress and that this was a through composed bit of chamber music basically yeah. and, um but it was beautiful it was like you know it was such a such a cool thing to see it live thank you well that was a um that was such fun music to play i mean we i i think we all felt like um zealots or, or like missionaries or something like that when when Thiele first got in touch about doing that um Man, that was so exciting because he, you know, obviously he's he's just the whole world knows how brilliant Chris Thiele is. It's, it's like in a way, um, it's easy to almost take for granted how expansive his mind is because he's just been around now for a long time. But but that was, you know, for someone like me, I, I knew him a little bit, but um, but that was a that was a really exciting phone call to get like, Hey, I'm putting, I want to do this thing. I want to do this really ambitious project. It wasn't going to be a band at that point. It was just going to be his next solo record. And, uh, you know, I want to, I want to get like young guys, you know, would you be part of it? And we, we were all really excited about it. And then the music that he was writing, boy, that was super exciting too, because nobody really written music that sounded like that for these instruments before. So, so there was this real, excitement kind of in the early days of i mean i worked so we all just practiced so much and worked so hard on that music because because we felt um we felt like man what what a beautiful opportunity this is this is so Hmm. um cool and special to 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 bring this this crazy music that no one's imagined before uh to life it was a it, it was a special it was a really special time it was a really cool, cool period. I was going to ask you about that. I mean, you've sort of mentioned the the arrangement is almost as much a part of the songs as the song is with Punch Brothers. I was going to ask mm-hmm. what the, the sort of the difference between the role of being a guitar player in Punch Brothers versus like band like the String Dusters, or because it, it does yeah. feel like a, a you know you've said before that um, it's not always there's not always a lot of improvisation. Um, it's very yeah. kind of you know very arranged and a lot of it's very premeditated. Um, yeah, I mean, is it, it's a different kind of guitar role to a lot of bluegrass bands. Very much so. I mean, in I mean, in some ways, yes, and in other ways, no. It, it, you can kind of look at it from different levels. Um, on kind of a a technical transcribable level, yes, it's pretty different. Um, not always. I mean, there's some songs that are a lot more flexible and we kind of will play a little bit more like a tune, but, but a lot of our music, like I'm playing a part that, um, yeah, I'm kind of, there's a guitar part that's going to work and it's going to work because it's going to interlock with the bass part and the banjo part and the mandolin part and the fiddle part. And they all are kind of going to have that relationship to each other. Um, and, and I feel like that's not, um, part of the core DNA 
of bluegrass in mm. any way, shape, or form. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it sort of is. You know, you could say, well, sure, the mandolin. You know, in the in the original bluegrass template, the mandolin's chopping on two and four, and that's really you can expect that. And the bass is often on one and three, or it might be if you go back to the real original bluegrass, like walking. You know, with like Bill Monroe back in the day. Um, so, so there are kind of some templates that you can expect, but in punch, it's just it's a lot tighter and more refined um, to where each part is is providing some harmonic, rhythmic, melodic, and co a combination of all of those functions at any given time. And it's all kind of how it fits together. Whereas, okay, playing with the Dusters, um, which was really fun. And I, I loved being a member of that band. And I love those guys. That was, that was a really um, joyful, special, I think back on that time too, that was a really special, beautiful time as well. Um, but that was really different. We were essentially playing songs and there were songs that were a little more sophisticated than most of the, than a lot of bluegrass, but they were mm -hmm. still kind of songs. It's like, here are the chords. Um, and so as a rhythm guitar player, um, you know, I could kind, kind of try to respond in the moment a lot more, um, to what somebody else did either by changing my voicing or changing a syncopation, or, or, you know, there's just a lot more there. Um, you know, and I kind of think of playing bluegrass that way is it's almost like playing jazz this is the analogy I use a lot. Um, you know, being like a bluegrass guitar player can be a little bit like being a jazz drummer. If you think about a drummer in jazz, Elvin Jones or, you know, Roy Haynes or anybody, um, they're very rarely just timekeepers playing a beat, you know, they instead will kind of they're keeping the beat going they're keeping the music flowing forward but there's a lot of interaction there's a lot of reaction there's a lot of commentary to what else is happening in the rest of the ensemble and the, the ensemble kind of swirls around itself there might be somebody who's a soloist who's kind of up in front but the the ensemble is actively engaged in creating music together mm. um at kind of all time like it creatively creating music together um and I feel like you can do that in bluegrass. I feel like that's what uh, Tony Rice was so great at. I mean, to me, Tony, as a rhythm guitar player, um, that's what just still blows my mind. Um, I mean, Tony as a soloist is incredible, and the what power he played with and the clarity is unbelievable. But, but I could, you know, I could let that go if I had to choose that or just the rhythm guitar. I'd, I'd, I'd somehow have the rhythm guitar because the way that he was able to um, participate in the ensemble and and lift up his fellow musicians um, was was unreal and unbelievable. And that that's something that I've. Um, I kind of learned about from Tony and that's something I've really tried to study as, as a rhythm guitar player. Um, you know, I'm not half as good at it as Tony is, but that's something that's always been really important to me. I've tried to be a guitar player who can hopefully get in there and, 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 uh, I don't want to call it magic, but like, but kind of, but that's kind of what Bela, how Bela describes Tony's playing. He said he could just bring a little extra magic into the situation. So, so that to me is like the highest calling of bluegrass guitar is that you don't just strum the chords. Um, mm. You know, when it gets to like a higher level art, you, you kind of make the music more rich and you make help 
two things that are going to help everybody to play better. I don't feel like I, I do um, that in a transcribable way in Punch Brothers so much. But then if we kind of, you know, I said you could look at these on two different levels. So, so it can be a lot more interactive in the moment playing bluegrass. Uh, Punch Brothers, the parts might be a little more defined. But if you kind of zoom up and zoom out a little bit, um, I think the headspace that you're in doing both of those things is kind of identical, which is you are listening. You're not a person who's doing the music or making it happen. You can kind of get to this headspace of being um, an observer, kind of, kind of like an active participant, but, but really uh, it's almost like the, the listening is the most important part. Like in punch, I, obviously I'm playing those parts and I'm obviously trying to make them breathe and I'm make, trying to make the music have a heartbeat in the same way that I would try to be kind of in the middle of the music and make the music have a heartbeat in, in a bluegrass band. But it's not something that I feel like I can try to control too much. The, the, mm. the, the common thing for both of those to do them, what I have, what I feel based on my experiences is like the best way I know how to do it is to kind of zoom out and, and have the perspective of being, um, of having the best seat in the house and kind of listening to the music and loving it as it unfolds and trying to, and you know, you're a part of that, you know, you're like, you're, you're, you're playing. And I feel like when you come at it from that perspective, um, it's easier to make that magic happen, whatever that, that thing is that, is difficult to define and it's not always there i i mean and lord knows like i wish i could have have that all the time and a lot of times i can't it's just like playing the parts but but when it's all going well i feel like that um that perspective what, what you're doing the role you're or your your experience of the role you're playing is not really very different um you know whether i'm playing something like movement and location or clara or some punch song like that um or, you know, Little Cabin Home on the Hill. Um, or, I mean, I don't actually get to play much straight-ahead bluegrass like that. But even, like, mm. something um, Punch Brothers would play, like, uh, that might be a little closer to that, like Hops of Goldenberg or the 11th Reel. Like, some of these things mm. that are tunes that are a little more connected to that sort of thing. Oh, that's really interesting because it's the – as somebody who has, you know, obviously never seen Tony Rice play or, or meet him just the when all the tributes and all the podcasts and videos and interviews were sort of coming out at the beginning of the year the thing that i was most struck by was the the way everybody talked about his rhythm playing and the the sort of the space and platform he created for other people and how then i found that fascinating because you know we uh, most bluegrass players spend most of their time practicing melody and taking breaks and not much time practicing rhythm and that's mostly what you're going to do as a guitar player is play rhythm yeah um and just to hear people talk about that i found that really sort of in line i went back and listened to it all with with sort of fresh ears and i interviewed um marcel from lessons with marcel the youtube channel oh yeah and and he was saying he'd you sort of seen this clip and somebody had asked tony to demonstrate his rhythm style and he said well i can't do it because there's nobody else here i can't do it on my own and that's yeah. such a remarkable he's like i can't show you how to play rhythm guitar because there's nobody else to play with yeah it's it was completely interactive completely reactive and um and yeah he, he did he made everybody everybody play better because it wasn't just it wasn't just his time feel although his time feel was unreal it's like 
for me, man, you know, I can get, I can get all the chords and the note, like that stuff I can do any, all the stuff Tony could do, but I can't get the feel. I, I've tried my whole life. I can't make it feel like that. I just can't do it. Um, and I wish I could, I would, you know, but, but it's like, so with Tony, it's just that, that feeling that he had with, for it was, man, it was like, I don't know. It just, it made everybody sore. Another thing that Bela, I heard Bela say about Tony, um, uh, that I loved was he said is like uh, like stepping onto a magic carpet. It's just mm-hmm. like you step onto yeah, this yeah. thing and you just like start you flying. You didn't know you, that you could just be on this thing and then you start flying. But um, but yeah, but you know the thing that that kind of caught my ear that I I could do was was and that Tony does so beautifully is like play all these different colors, like bring all these interesting colors to bear as well mm-hmm. as that kind of rhythmic touch. Um, and that's so cool. I mean, uh, one of my favorite records, um, maybe my favorite record for that is is the Bluegrass Sessions, Tales from the Acoustic Planet Part Two, the, the um, record that they made. Uh, and and I, you know, listening to the rhythm guitar on that record, and and it's to me, it's not necessarily about Tony's feel on that record. And part of this might be how Bela edited it, because Bela edits stuff a lot. And he'll go, kind of go and try and get all the best parts. Um, and it feels great on there, but it's that to me is not... That record's fascinating from a kind of rhythm guitar content perspective. Um, because you can tell that Bela was like getting in there and just like the best, the coolest little thing. Like, where did that come from? Um, it's all over on that record. And it's it's really fun to kind of put put that record on and just and just listen through and pay attention to the rhythm. Um, it's it's beautiful, totally beautiful. And I think that what that sort of says about um, about any musician is, I think the thing that we forget as musicians is listening, because we're so keen to. It's like the sort of metaphor of music as a language, and you're trying to communicate something. We're so busy trying to show people what we can do and what we can say that, it, like in conversation, we forget to listen and uh, to express anything. It has to be in response to something somebody else has said. You can't just drop interesting thoughts you've got in your head into a conversation and make an interesting experience um and i think the listening side of being a musician is so it's like being a writer you need to read a lot being a musician you need to listen not just while you're not playing but while you're playing and um it's a it's almost a separate skill in a way that some people have just got a really developed ear and a developed ability or willingness to do it and it, it can make such a difference well, I think I think what they what it all has in common is is a real love of music. You know, um, I think to be a great musician, to be a great player, or, or I mean, there's a lot of different ways to be a great musician. Um, mm. But but um, because there are a lot of great musicians who have made a lot of great music, and they've all done it differently. Um, but but I think coming from the perspective of loving music, um, anybody who really loves music is going to and love loves the sound that they make is going to make something that's worth hearing you know and again it might not be for you but if if somebody's in actively in that that place of loving the mu- being a music fan um while they're playing music um then it's going to be worth listening to and, and being a music fan you know that the way we become music fans in the first place is by listening to music you know that's kind of what i um 
I, I grew up just surrounded by great music. It was one of the kind of happy accidents of my life um, is that not only, you know, growing up around the seldom scene and just having these amazing musicians around that, that was incredible because it provided a, um, a model of like, you can be a real actual human being, not just somebody that I've seen on a poster or a screen mm -hmm. and, and make great music. Like, so that was, that to me was a big lesson that, but, but just to hear those guys all the time. And then, and my mom, who is like uh, just a deep lover of, of music. And that comes from her parents. Her parents kind of met through a love of classical music. I mean, that's, and they weren't, neither one of them were players, but they kind of lived for classical music and mm. jazz, but mostly classical music. And so growing up, it was like music, um, especially with my mom, was like a religion. Um, you know, I spent a lot of, my parents were divorced. They got divorced when I was very young. And they were, very amicable and everything was totally cool. But, but I spent a lot of time with my mom um, and we would just drive around in the car listening to this incredible stuff. Um, and, and like so much Oscar Peterson and Joni Mitchell and a lot of David Grisman quintet and Glenn Gould playing all kinds of Bach, you know, and that I was just lucky that that was part of my environment. Um, I kind of yeah. learned there was all this this uh, great curation that happened in my environment, and so I just I didn't have to do anything. And great music was there, and I just loved it because it was awesome. But but I feel like it starts with that. It starts with um, I, like I, again, not to be self keep being self referential, but 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 I I think that um, you know I. My, I felt like I was a kind of a musician or I, I really cared deeply about music from the time I can, from the time I was like five years old. I didn't, I didn't start playing music or doing any of that till I was nine or 10. Um, but music, but I was as serious about music when I was, you know, five or six as I was when I started playing it mm. as a listener, you know, I did a similar sort of experience, except there were no musicians in my house when I grew up, but there was a lot of music and a lot of variety of music. I remember being mm -hmm. sort of, you know, four or five and listening to the Beatles and wondering why my friends didn't listen to the Beatles. And, yeah. and, we, and we had Buddy Holly and the Stones. And, but my dad listened to a lot of classical music and he'd listen to Miles Davis. And, the Be you know, and even within the classical stuff, there was a range from Wagner to Plain Chant to Benjamin Britten to like it was all over the place. Um, yeah. You just sort of absorb it a bit, don't you? Um, and I sort of thought of myself as a musician years before I ever played an instrument. But in my head, yeah. I was, this was something I was going to do one day. You know, yeah, um, it's a whole, it's a world, you know, it's this whole world that you have access to that no one can ever take away from you, but you mm. can just close your eyes and, and it's there. And I think that's a really interesting thing because just through the, the people that I've interviewed for the podcast, but also reading about people and listening to other interviews, there's a really, seems to be a really strong theme um, of musicians who grew up around musical parents. You know, you think about Brian Sutton and his dad, Billy Strings and his dad, Justin Moses played with his family band, Molly Tuttle, like, you know, the, it seems to be a real thread of a lot of musicians grew up not only being incredibly encouraged by their parents, but also their parents being able to participate in it in some way. Yeah. Just, just having yeah. access to instruments and things like that, you know, is a, it's a big, it's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it was, that was something that I got to do with both of my parents, you know, cause my mom played, was a banjo player too. That's how they met. I was, I was, you know, say that it's miraculous that I actually grew, you know, came out with 10 fingers and 10 <laughs> toes. Um, but, but like, 
yeah, getting to do that with, with them when I was a kid was was so fun. It was like su- it's such a great way to participate. Do you know have have something you actually do with your folks? Um, and and when, I'll tell you when I got older too, um, and was was more serious, getting to play with my dad in a seldom scene, mm. which fully started out as like pure nepotism, but but um, but kind of turned into I was like good enough to be there, but there's no reason that there should ever have been a lead guitar player in the seldom scene. Um, but the fact that I got to um, have that time with my dad in my early twenties, I mean, because I there was a there was a while where they hired me on like i was a full-time member of the band like mm-hmm. i was getting um there were six members of the cell full-on members of, for of the seldom scene for a little while and that that was that was incredible um but what was the most special about it was just getting to have this time bonding with my father and hitting the road we'd travel together um it was i feel like a lot of people don't get to do that in their lives especially their older lives yeah um is to have that kind of quality time and it was it was really um magical really really special because because we always had a you know really good relationship and he lived literally four blocks from my mom when i was growing up I and mean, we were very uh, everybody was cool but but i you know i really lived with my mom i'd, I'd go with my dad on weekends sometimes and mm. and to get to have that experience that the music was the reason uh when i was older was was really great yeah i mean it must be lovely um and i guess it sort of leads into the other thing i was going to ask you about is is sort of that idea of sort of coming full circle again to the point where i like, think the other new thing in your life now is teaching on teaching artist works and being able to be yeah. in a position of sort of mentoring somebody else and and passing and there's a real strong I mean I love what they do artist works but it's a strong thread throughout the bluegrass world is that the there aren't really many great players who consider themselves too good to teach or too good to pass things on there's no there's no sense right. that almost no sense that the two things are separate things that if you've as you said at the beginning if you've sort of been able to jam with your idols when you're a kid and learn it's just the idea that part of your job is to then give that back to the next generation almost yeah it's a it's a it's a huge part of it's a huge part of the community it's a big part of what makes this music um tick and yeah i mean artist works i'm i'm very excited about that because um it baked into the platform is is the whole ve uh, video exchange thing which by the way i've got one the next one i'm gonna i gotta film is yours i i filmed it the other night and then my camera died halfway through <laughs> curses technology um so i gotta i gotta get inspired and give you another one but but um this idea that you can that you can um kind of interact and and kind of give people tailored advice to what they're up to is really cool um i i I love that and i love i love um nobody told me to do this but i i kind of love the freedom on there to just be like okay i'm a teacher so you might have even asked me about this question but we're going to talk about that a little bit but here's what i think we actually should be talking mm. about or the the neat core issue underneath which i think is i think artist works is cool that way because it's not just a curriculum online um that you go the first this step and that step i mean all that stuff's wonderful as well and that kind of gives you a, a lattice to hang the other stuff off of but i i, I love that um I, I just I enjoy teaching. I mean, teaching has always been something that um, 
I've, I've liked doing, I think, you know, getting somebody to have kind of a light bulb moment. Mm. Um, what a beautiful thing to share, you know, to share something that might cause someone else to feel switched on or excited or, or kind of have this, you know, discovery where they can, they can then kind of burrow into it on their own. Um, and that to me is what teaching is all about. I, I, I kind of feel like you can't actually, you can't actually teach anybody anything directly. Ultimately people have to learn things on their own, but you can be a great guide and you can, you, you, I feel like that's what it is to be a teacher is to be a, a, a guide. Like I have, I've gone down this road. Um, let me point you in some directions that might really um, get you interested or, or, or how the, the question for, as the teacher is like, how can I, um, how can I share this piece of information that someone then might be able to take and run with? Um, cause I think that's where the, the real kind of profound learning is. And, and that's, I, I just, I love that. I love doing that. Yeah. And it's almost like, it's almost like parenting. I've got a nine year old son and he's, you know, I can't, I can't turn him into any kind of person. He's not going to be himself. I can only yeah. sort of point his head in certain directions and go, look at that. That might be handy or look at that. That's cool. Or, or I got this wrong. So I'm telling you about it. So you've got the option to see it coming or whatever. Um, but I think that's the thing. That's the joy of artist works is that bit of personalized. I mean, I started getting lessons from Brian Sutton to know just over a year ago, maybe. And I sort of showed up thinking, yes, yeah, is great. I'm going to play something and Brian's going to show me some really cool licks. And this is going to be exciting. And the first thing he was said was, you know, move your arm. It's in the wrong place. And I, I promise you, if you spend a couple of weeks getting used to it, it's going to sound better. And I did. Yeah. And he, and he would, but that's not what I came to him for. And I, I, right. you know, and I was one of the lucky people who was asked to sort of demo your lessons before they launched, just to kind of give them a once over. And then I had a few weeks um, free after that just to play around with it. And, and I did. And I sent you a VE. And the, it's the immediate response. I unlocked something and I was like well I'm going to sign up for a year of this as well then because just those those moments of just being able to come to you for something and sometimes like I'm sure most of us in artists works at some point have submitted a video just to sort of show you that we think we're good just to go I'd like you to think I'm a good guitar player is the only thing I want you to do and um and actually when you least are asking a question is sometimes when you get the best answer if you know what I mean somebody just sees something in what you're playing and can say have you thought about this or and it, it's just those, I think I could have sat and played in front of videos with no interaction for a year or two and become a better player, but I wouldn't have had any yeah. of those moments that then send me off on a little journey of exploration to see where I could go. You well, know, that's what, that to me is what's so fun about, about playing guitar is, is are those journeys of exploration, you know, that, that I still, um, you know, I, it's not for me, I don't pick up the guitar as much as I did when I was a kid. Like when I was younger, you couldn't keep it out of my hands. And now if I'm not, it's sort of like going to the gym, you know, if I've been going to the gym a lot, then I feel a compulsion to go to the gym. But if I've fallen off of it, I might go two weeks and not exercise, you know, and guitar for me can be like that now. I mean, there's definitely times during this pandemic when I probably didn't touch it for a couple of weeks. Um, But I feel like once I can kind of get going um, on it again, that same kind of childlike curiosity, it's always still there. And that's, that's kind of what, um, that's kind of what I live for. I mean, to me, there there are two, 
there, there are a few sides of music that make it just special and, and worthwhile. One is just as a as a listener, like again, that you can put on some headphones and close your eyes and be just transported um, to a different world. Um, just it can be this beautiful transcendent experience, and 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 you just your normal reality is gone, and you're somewhere mm. else. Like that's amazing. Okay, that's like check one in, in the music column. Um, and, and, and again, I say this all the time, but it's so true. No one can ever take that away from you. That's, that's this thing that you've got. Um, but, but also, um, just the curiosity, the, the, the kind of the transcendent world you can get into if you allow your curiosity to be peaked is so cool and special like to me i i can still just pick up the guitar i just did this yesterday um and i was i mean this is like kind of a dorky sounding thing but whatever it was interesting to me i uh i was messing around and by the way if anybody's thinking about this isn't actually like you know matt asked me if i wanted to do this podcast this wasn't like okay let's chill for artist works but i will say this is not what my artist works course consists of but i was i was i was like okay let me just mess around with harmonizing modes of the harmonic minor scale and see what crazy sounds come out um because there it yields all these like amazing core you know these sounds you know Mm. you get a you get a a minor chord and then you get a diminished chord and then you get an augmented chord and you get another minor chord and you get two major chords that are half step apart and you play those together and it wait here i'm gonna grab my guitar and show you because this was this was this was just so fun for me hang on i'm gonna mess it up because i'm you know just was learning this stuff um but yeah this idea that you could have uh uh what is it uh like that is just this this scale this harmonic minor scale which is um just those notes um and and anyway it's just taking each of those notes and skipping every other note so this one skip this one so you got those two and then you from this note you skip one you got that so and then you just move up to the next note in the scale ah how beautiful is that like that's this whole world that i just am not well versed in um and it just it just piqued my curiosity i just thought like gosh like that's just pretty and it makes me feel things it makes me feel things um and i i want to know more about that and i don't know you can always do that and you, can, you can get it from that. you know you can get it from such simple things as well you can you can get it from complex things but i remember being in a band years ago and just thinking i wonder how far through this song i can get just playing two notes an octave apart and nothing else yeah and, and like just go i'm going to try and get all the way through this song and i'm all going to play as an e and an e and octave above it and yeah you get to a point where you go yeah okay that's not going to work all the way through but we ended up with the entire first verse of a song was just two notes you know in the back and the yeah okay and you, that's you just find a little thing and go right. Let's go and let's go and dig and see where we end up. It's, well, it's just to, a to joyous yourself, thing. Totally, totally. To give yourself constraints like that can be a really, really um, powerful creative tool. 
um, just play something on one string, you know, see what happens and try and make music happen. It, it, it'll, it'll challenge you if you're, if you're just kind of playing, if you, if you kind of in the habit of just letting your fingers go, if you give yourself the constraint of like, you got one or two strings and a few frets, then you kind of, your, your muscle memory isn't just going to take care of it. You, you kind of have to start thinking a little bit differently and, and, and it kind of just, it gets you to engage, um, your, um, oh, not intuition. Um, I'm blanking on this word too. Anyway, you, you have to, you have to engage. It's like MacGyver. Do you ever remember the show MacGyver? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, what is this term I'm thinking of that MacGyver was the master of? He'd like have, you know, two, you know, paper clips and a clothes hanger and a, a gallon of milk. And he'd, you know, somehow make a parachute out of it. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. Resourceful. You have to, that's what it, MacGyver was very resourceful. And so as, as you know, musicians, it can be great to give yourself constraints like that because it, it kind of switches your mode. Um, it's enough, you, you know, you, you make the constraint um, tight enough so that you're not going to have to deal with tons of information. You can kind of map it out relatively easily, but then you have to be resourceful and, and be musical within that. And that, that can be a really wonderful way to, um, to, to find stuff, you know, mm. to again, to pique your curiosity. And once, once your curiosity is peaked, then you can kind of open things back up a little bit and give yourself a little more room. Yeah. And it's true. You can, that muscle memory thing of it's easy just to sit down and start playing the same old stuff every time you pick a guitar up. And one of the, I've, one of the tricks I've developed for getting me out of that is to take a fiddle tune that is in like a, you know, a reel or something that's in four and play it in jig time because you have to at mm. least leave every fourth note out or make some changes to it just it sort of shocks me out of complacency a little bit because i have, yeah, to, actually, exactly. I have to actually think again you can't just play whiskey totally. for breakfast you've got to go oh hang on a minute i've not got as, i've only got these six notes in the bar instead of eight now well, and then i've got to pick them differently and oh god i've got to think and yeah because i can get really lazy otherwise yeah it's it's really good yeah whatever you have to it's like whatever works you know and again to to bring it to the gym analogy it's like running works great for some people uh, you know, I love it cause I can just walk out my front door and go other people go to the gym and work out. It works for them. Mm. Um, so it's kind of, I feel like a lot of this stuff is you kind of find, you figure out what piques your curiosity. You figure out, um, what's gonna, what you can become invested in. And, um, and that's, that's kind of the most, um, fertile ground to, to kind of explore. Um, you don't, Julian has, Julian Lodge has this great thing that he says about improvising, um, that he always says that, you know, there's this myth that in order to improvise, um, you have to go to jazz hell and back and learn every mode and every arpeggio and every set, whatever. And, uh, and, and he says, it's just, it's just not true. That's just simply not true. You just have to play. You just have Mm -hmm. to be, you know. Um, and, and it is true. You basically, you have to be willing to, um, step off, step off into the unknown and, and learn how to embrace that and learn to learn to embrace mistakes and learn to embrace, uh, failure. Cause it's not actually failure. That's just, you just think it is. Um, yeah. And, yeah. I remember reading Julian, Julian wrote an article that was sort of 12 observations on the guitar or, or whatever. And one of them was to listen to your, like to, to improvise and record it and listen back and look for yeah. the things that you do like you tend to do regularly because i you know i'm the same I, I when i improvise i just beat myself up for not sounding like 
like I think I should or whatever. And and reading that sort of unlocked a thing. And Brian Sutton has done the same. We've sort of pointed out things that I do that are me. And I tend to think of them as being stylistically incorrect because I don't sound like a bluegrass player when I do them. But he's like, no, those are the things that make you you. So lean into those. Do more of them. I like those. Yeah. They're the good stuff. Exactly. And I am exactly. sort of constantly holding myself up to this weird template of the kind of guitarist they think I ought to be. And he's going, don't, just, just be the one you are. Yeah. Oh, well, that's it. I mean, well, that to go back to Tony's thing. I mean, that's what Tony did. You know, Tony had bluegrass in his blood and he had jazz in his blood. And all those things were, were what he just simply, those were him. And and he did the work and kind of brought it out. But but that's not to say that um, that's what, those are the notes that you would have or the perspective that mm. you would have. Um, and and I, think that's, I think that's just really true for all of us. You, you, you kind of want to lean into um, who you are and what you do. I, I mean, it's a funny thing. A lot of musicians will avoid the thing that they do well. Mm. I mean, and you can make this argument for uh, Punch Brothers, like I was saying earlier, like, why you know we could and probably should just make a record sometime of us just playing straight ahead music where we're not you know like that would kind of be interesting to me to hear um or at least to be a part of like what, what would it be with with this band you know what would it be with those guys you, you can kind of get into a thing where even though that's sort of like falling off a log you don't want to do that thing because you, you you tend to undervalue things that you can do um without much effort yeah yeah and i think the how to grow a woman from the ground album feels a bit like that feels like sort of mm-hmm. straighter music and is maybe that was part of the process of getting to know each other as musicians so you could sort of stretch out and, and do the more detailed stuff but there's there's a, there's a not a simplicity to that album but there's a sort of directness to it it's just a bunch of yeah. guys playing a bunch of instruments on a bunch of songs um, well that that record too I'm i'm really fond of that record that that record um it's got 14 songs and we we rehearsed for three days and we recorded for three days like from start from the first time we played the first note of the first song at rehearsal to the when the album was done was less was six days um and so that what i like about that record is that that is just the sound of us like just getting it done that that's Mm. that's us just like you know back to the wall back against the wall like just playing music um because because we didn't have time to mess around like that was that was it and i I, it's it's fun that was a that was a that was a really neat record for that reason really fun record to make ronnie mccurry was there for that record he wasn't listed as the producer but we called him our bluegrass guru we wanted to make (laughs) sure that he would be there that we would have somebody to keep us in check in case we were getting uh too far afield and so ronnie kind of came up and and uh was listening to playbacks and stuff brilliant that was really cool oh yeah yeah, i love that record it's it's a cool record so that that sort of sort of looping back to tony and individuality sort of brings us back full circle to where we started really um which is maybe a nice point to think about wrapping up but i'd I'd really like to ask sort of what you've got coming next obviously you've set aside time for hell on church street coming out and be promo for that and fingers crossed you'll be able to tour for that um yeah so that's probably going to take up most of this year i'd guess Fingers are very much crossed um, for that. Um, yeah, that's going to be, you know, we're doing that in uh, January, February, March, and then some in the summer and in the fall as far as touring and the album will be out. Um, another thing, it's not, we haven't mixed it yet, but we recorded it actually about a week and a half before we recorded Hell on Church Street is another record 
that I'm really, really excited about. It is kind of a straight ahead bluegrass record. It's me and Noam and Greg Garrison, who was the original bass player in Punch, and Alex Hargraves, who is this really wonderful uh, fiddler, um, just unbelievable. And Andrew Marlin, who's the kind of guitar player, mandolin player, singer, um, songwriter for this band, Mandolin Orange. Or actually, they they used to, excuse me, I can't believe I just said that. They used to be called Mandolin Orange. They've changed, they're, they're now Watch House. So he's this guy from Watch House, but but Andrew's an amazing musician, and we made sort of a. Uh, it's not quite straight ahead, but it's like relatively straight ahead record um, that I'm really excited about. I, I I think it's I think it's I think it's a cool record, um, and I don't know when that'll come out. I don't, I maybe shouldn't even be spilling the beans about it, but. Um, <laughs> But that that I'm genuinely psyched about. That's going to be a fun project too. So hopefully that you know we'll get it mixed and everything, and hopefully that'll come out in the not too distant future, and we can play some shows with it. Yeah, that'd be cool. I look forward to hearing that. That'd be great. Is there anything yeah. else we've got kind of going on at the moment? Or is, I mean, that's a pretty busy year ahead already by the sound of it. I mean, you know, um, between artist works, and I, I teach at um, Oberlin College, yeah. um, where I went to school. Um, so between those things and Let's see. I'm, you know, just, you know, normal old life stuff. Got the dogs. We've got a house where we've been renovating. You know, it's like all, the, all that kind of stuff is keeping us plenty busy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, cool. Yeah. Um, so, what's the best place for me to send people to to find out information on the various bits? Gosh, you know, I would say my website, although I haven't updated it. Um, Maybe I, I hit hit it once in the last four years, but basically, uh, you know, the, my Facebook, I, my handle on all the on all those things is uh, Critter because everybody calls me, or not everybody, but a lot of people call me Critter um, Eldridge. Uh, at you know, and that's like to facebook.com slash Critter Eldridge. I think I'll get you there, and my, that's my Instagram handle, and um, yeah, that's good. And you know, I do have a website, chriseldridge.net. Or, or actually, I think there's also CritterEldridge.com, like, I, if I'm not mistaken. Probably sends you to the same place. But that or Punch Brothers. And, uh, and, and, and hopefully, by the way, hopefully Julian and I, we were going to, Julian Lodge and I were going to uh, uh, do some touring in 2020. We had a tour booked, and that got oh, canceled. Right. So, yeah. um, and, and we've been talking about doing some other recording, too. But the pandemic really kind of threw off the stuff with Jules. But... But we we have plans that were sidelined, so so they're still they're still there. The plans waiting in the wings. It's just we'll, we got to find the time to do it. Oh, that'd be cool. Um, I love listening to yeah. you two play together. Uh, it's my it's my favorite. I mean, Julian is just he's like a he's a just such a beautiful person, and obviously such an unbelievable musician and guitar player. And you know the funny thing about Julian, for is is truly virtuosic and incredible and everything as he is um you just you never feel better about yourself as a guitar player this speaks to him as a as a character than when you're playing with julian like how could that make sense it doesn't typically work that way with Mm. people like that who are who are these like super virtuosos but julian is the most warm empathetic beautiful guy and most warm empathetic beautiful musician um and he's he's um he's very fierce too obviously you know but like but uh i i love playing with jules and i i I hope we get to i hope we get to do that again before too terribly long well if you do i hope i get to see it at some point so that'd be great 
we got to come to the UK at some yeah, point. Yeah, I don't yeah. know when we're going to do it, but we need to. We there was talk. There was talk about trying to do Celtic connections at some point. So we'll, we'll see. One of these days, we'll, we'll, we'll yeah, get over yeah. there. Well, thanks so much for making the time to do this. It's been it's been a delight. I've really enjoyed it. No, oh, totally. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And uh, and there's a VE coming your way. I promise. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Cool. All right, Matt. there we have it that was great i hope you enjoyed that as much as i did um yeah just such a joy talking to chris and thanks to him again for his time doing that it was great um i'll stick some links in the show notes to chris's stuff with julian large obviously to punch brothers as well um and i'll stick some uh, links in there to chris's artist work stuff too i know particularly at the time of recording this there are some really hefty discounts on that so if you're thinking about getting some classes from chris which i would highly recommend um now is a good time to do it but to be honest any time is a good time to do it um cool that's it i've got more interviews lined up there's some really cool stuff coming up actually over the next couple of months um, but i also am aware that i need to get back onto the tunes as well um so i'll be cracking on with that um but yeah thanks for listening have a great week and happy picking Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why.